And as he approached these checkpoints, he knew that if they found that he had Bibles in his car, that he would be arrested and probably killed. And so one of Brother Andrew's prayers that he prayed frequently was, he said, God, on this earth you made blind eyes see, but I pray now that you'd make seeing eyes blind. As you see in that story, he passed out thousands, tens of thousands, and now millions of Bibles into countries that don't have it. The question I have for you is, why in the world would a man put his life on the line to take a book into a communist country? Why would a man devote his life to take a book into places where if he were caught, he would be killed for it? Well, as he says in that video, it was this book that changed his life. This is no mere book, family. This is the word of God. When you read this, God is talking to you. No other book does that. This is not a sermon about getting the Bible into other people's hands. It is a sermon about the Bible that is in your hands. I don't know if you guys heard that. It was really quiet here. This is not a sermon about getting Bible into other people's hands, but it's about the Bible that is in your hands. You hear me? All right? This, this is not about making blind or seeing eyes blind, but it's making our blind eyes see. See, what Brother Andrew understood and what we must understand is there is no revival in any country, in any land, without the Bible being exalted, being lifted high. Because in the scriptures is the good news of Jesus. So when we preach the good news of Jesus, we're preaching the Bible. And let it soak in that there are people in this world who haven't got one. I've got probably a half dozen translations alone in my office. You've all got one on your phone. And yet people would risk their lives to read what oftentimes we let collect dust. What's going on? At the heart of that is this reality, family, that if you and me lack a hunger for God's word, we need revival. We might not be finding ourselves in in really gross rebellion and, and straying all the way around, but maybe we just don't have a hunger for God and his word. And in order for that hunger to take place, God needs to revive our hearts. He needs to awaken us to the beauty of the word and to its need in our lives. This is not a, 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 something that's optional. It's essential. We need the scriptures. So my prayer for you guys, and my prayer for myself, is that when you leave this morning, you would say, God, I want more of you through your word. Will you pray that with me? Let's repeat that. God, give me your word. Say it. God, give me a hunger. Say it. I hope that prayer goes from just mere words to something that you feel in your heart. We're going to look at a story in the Bible where God's word brings revival. We find ourselves in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 33 and 34. And yes, you heard that right, 2 Chronicles. That's the book of the Bible I would skip over because it's like a lot of words and numbers and things like that. 
But trust me, you're not going to want to sleep on this book. Second Chronicles is towards the, the, the middle of your Bible to the left. In your pew Bible, I don't know the page number, but hopefully someone who's there could tell me. Anybody know? 385, thank you very much. If you don't have God's words spoken to you, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, please take the one in front of you. We're going to find ourselves in 2 Chronicles chapters 33 and 34. And we're going to see the power of the Bible to do many things. The first thing we're going to see is the power of the Bible, of God working through his word to redeem a legacy. Some of you have had some pretty crappy legacies handed down to you. Some of you have some horrible things in your past or in your family's past, and you can't find a way to escape from it. And you feel like you're stuck in this mess. You're going to see that God, through his word, can redeem the mess. This all starts in 2 Chronicles 33. I'm going to tell you this story. There's a king named Manasseh. He reigned for some 55 years. And hands down, he is understood to be the most wicked, evil king in all of Israel's history. One person called him Nasty Manasseh. <laughs> what the guy did is he set up altars to foreign gods all over the land. And in 2 Chronicles 33, check out what he did. In verse, let's see if I can find myself here. Verse 6. Second Chronicles 33, 6. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers and so forth. This guy sacrificed his own kids for his fake gods. Dude, it was wicked, evil. And for 55 years, the nation of Israel was led by his example. And what was telling in verse 9, it says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. They were worse off than the wicked nations that God removed to put his nation there. Manasseh left a horrible legacy to his son, And after he dies, after 55 years, his son Amon takes over. Well, he was just as wicked as his dad was. He continued the same things. He was so wicked and so evil that he only was king for two years. Why? Because someone assassinated him. So for 57 years, those two kings combined, Israel was given a legacy. And now I'm thinking... What of Amon's son? (laughs) Manasseh would be then the grandfather. Amon is the father. What of the son of Amon who now is put on the throne? Well, as we read the story, you find that Amon was in his 20s when he was assassinated, which means his son was only eight. His son was handed a legacy that you and I would cry to be given to us. And some of you feel like, man, that sounds like my my legacy. We're going to see God redeem the legacy of this eight-year-old king named Josiah. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We see this young man coming to throne. Not even a young man, a little boy. Josiah, in verse 1, was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. We get some facts about this king 
But look at verse 2. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father, which essentially is his great, 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 great grandfather. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. A redirection in legacies taken place. Well, what happened in Josiah's life? What did he do? What, what took place that this kid with 57 years of generations before him were so wicked? What happened? Well, we see there in verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, when he was just 16 years old, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. Hear that? He began to seek God at 16 And then in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. He began to seek God at 16 years old. Some of you guys are young here in this room. Maybe you're less than 16. Maybe you're 16 or just over 16 years old. You need to understand King Josiah was in your shoes and he chose to seek God. Young people, youth, listen, hear this out. I know the world is pressuring you guys. Social media pressures you guys. Culture is burdensome. But Josiah was up against a lot of the same stuff. He had 57 years he had to redirect. And so you need to understand that when you seek God, he can use you. He can use you in your hallways in junior high or high school or even for those of you who are young collegiate students. Josiah sought the Lord. He cried out to God. He chose to worship him. Even though his grandpa was wicked, his dad was evil, he chose to love the Lord. And then we see there in verse 3, not only did he seek God, but he began began to purge. Hear that word. He began to purge the land. Of what? Well, it says here, he began to purge the land of Judah and Jerusalem, of the high places and the ashram, the carved and the metal images, he began to eradicate the idols from the land. Look at verse 4. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in the presence, in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them, and he broke in pieces the ashram. Notice the verbs here. Chopped, broke, cut, and, he, and the carved, um, carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them. And scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Josiah's making a statement. He said, you worship these gods? I'm going to crush these gods into smithereens, into dust. And I'm going to spread them over the ashes of those who worship these gods. Which undoubtedly meant his dad and grandpa as well. He's making a statement at 16 years old. Look at verse 5. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and the ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim, these are different poles of of worship, and the images into powder and cut down the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. He made a statement. He purged the land of his idols. See, I think about this. We must understand, family, that there's one God, there's one king, and there's one throne. And our God does not play a game of thrones. There are no competitors. 
His throne is high and exalted. And Josiah, as a young man, sought God and understood that. Some of you are a lot older than Josiah was. You, you, you've got a few generations above him, a few, a few decades on him. But notice this. It, it's never too late to begin to seek God and turn that life around by God's strength and with his help and not by your own power. Josiah sought God and then purged the land of its idols. He understood that these idols were a distraction to true worship of God. We've got to understand, we've got our American idols, don't we? Think about our land. Think about your heart. See, our idols sometimes sing or rap, but we've got different idols in our land of food and fame and money, sex and power, careers, work, education, family. We've got things that we worship, and you might say, I don't bow my knee to those things, but you don't have to bow the knee in order to worship something. See, an idol is whatever takes the place of God in our lives. What do you give your affections to? What is the primary joy of your life? What does your life revolve around? And there you will find the object of your worship. Somebody once says that an idol is a good thing become a God thing, which makes it a bad thing. See, sometimes the idols in our lives are things that might be inherently good, but when they become the point of our affections, the driving force in our lives, that becomes an idol. It does. And we've lost sight then of God. Josiah saw the idols in his land. Can we see the idols in our hearts? Another idol that I often see is this idol of security in our country. Now, I need you to stay with me here, but again, Idols are not always bad things. There's good things that turn into God things, which makes them bad things. But in our nation, we are very uh, convinced of our need for safety and security. And think about insurances. You got life insurance, which is really death insurance, right? Then you got home insurance, fire insurance, flood insurance. We have security programs. We have all kinds of things in order to keep us safe and comfortable. And again, hear me. A lot of those things are, are trenched in wisdom. Trust me. But... When we know those things become an idol is when God wants us to take take risks and we can't do it because it's scary. It's risky. It's not safe. See, we can make an idol of our security. We say, I'm not going to have that hard conversation because that's scary. I'm not going to tell that friend about Jesus because that's scary. I'm not going to give because that's scary. I'm not going to use my gifts because it's scary. We've made an idol then of security and safety. See, King Josiah understands that idols are a distraction of worship from worship of the true God. And so what you and I must do is oppose the idols in our hearts and expose the idols in our society. You've got to identify what is it in your heart that seeks to take your affections away from God. Don't say you haven't got idols. Just as that song we sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is an admission of our own frailty. And to deny it is to fool ourselves. So what things seek to take your affections away from God? Oppose those things. They may be good things, so don't go out and say, like, I hate these things. 
but put them in their rightful place. And that means behind your worship of God. Oppose the idols in your heart. Expose the idols of your society. And it's precisely what King Josiah did. Love his courage. Some of you are asking, like, but you said you were going to talk about the scriptures today. You haven't talked about the Bible. Well, see, I'm preaching the Bible, first of all, which is exposing the idols in our hearts. But I also said there's a revival that happened in Israel because of the Bible. So that's what we're going to get to here. See, King Josiah not only wanted to purge the land of its idols, but he also wanted to restore proper worship of the real God. So he steps foot into the temple, and he sees a horrible thing. He's there in the temple that his great, 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 great grandfather, King Solomon, built, and it has fallen into disrepair and ruin. And he is appalled. He says, how can we worship our God when the temple is in ruins? So he says, let's get our money together, and let's repair the temple. So look down in verse 11. With this money, he says, they gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for, uh, for binders and beams for the building that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. See who the guilty party is? The kings had let the temple go to ruin just as he let their worship and their hearts and the nation go to ruin. Well, as King Josiah is striving to be faithful, striving to, to get worship restored, look what happens in verse 14. While people are there in the temple doing the repairs, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Let that sink in here. He found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. To say he found it implies that it was lost. God put Israel in the land that he chose. He gave them his covenants and his promises and his word, and they forgot about his word. They lost the Bible. They didn't have the scriptures. Israel wasn't reading the word. And here King Josiah has them repairing the temple, and they pull this thing out like, this is the word of God. We found it. So the priest goes back to King Josiah and says, hey, you got to check this out. And they start reading the scriptures to King Josiah. And it says in verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He's grieved. He's like, where has this been? Well, 57 years of idolatry preceding you tried to cage God's word. God tells us his word will not be bound. See, there are things in our lives that want to put God's word in a cage. There are distractions in our lives that want to put it under wraps and and cause us to not delight in it. But understand, this is what separates our God from other gods. We heard a Christian rapper named KB talk about this at Legacy. He says, what makes our God different from other gods is our God speaks. You can say money talks, sure. It says what you let it say. Our God speaks. So King Josiah reads the word and is just overwhelmed by it. He's wrecked by it. He tears his clothes and says, we're in trouble. Look what he says in verse uh, 21. He tells them, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord 
to do according to all that is written in the book. King Josiah understands that the nation's in a bad place. They've been disobeying God's word. And he says, we're in trouble. God's wrath and his anger is directed toward us. So we got to find out what we're going to do. So they go to a prophetess, a woman named Huldah. She was a woman of God, great character. And I find it fascinating, by the way, how God uses this woman to bring revival in the nation. Jeremiah was a prophet during the same time, but they didn't go to Jeremiah. They went to Huldah. Sisters, you must understand your voice is important. Society may try to quench you ladies, but there is something amazing about a woman who is committed to God's word and who will not stay silent about her passion for Jesus. And so Hulda gives the king two messages. He says, first of all, she says, first of all, to the king, what you fear is going to happen. God is going to judge the nation. It's going to be bad. Disaster is coming. But she says, but second of all, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. It's not going to happen in your lifetime. Why? Well, look in verse 27. She says this. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard the words against this place and its inhabitants and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Hulda says, Josiah, because you repented, because you humbled yourself before God, when you heard God's word, you put yourself under its authority. And he said, God, we return from our sins, forgive us. She says, because of that decision, you're going to avert wrath in your lifetime. Disaster will not come because of this humble king. We go on to find that Josiah makes a covenant before God and says, God, we are committing ourselves to your word. Revival happens in the nation. See, throughout church history, there have been times where the scriptures are somewhat caged. And as we read church history, we find out that in the 16th century, even the 15th century, God's word had been caged up by the church, by the Catholic church. And there was one church at the time. And what happened was that the authority of the Pope and the bishops had more authority than the Bible itself. And early in the 1500s, there was a, a, a Catholic priest, a monk, who started reading the Bible and saying, something's not adding up here. This monk's name was Martin Luther. And he began to study the scriptures. And as he opened the Bible, he said, what we're living out is not consistent with the Bible. It's being caged up. And he begins to challenge the authority of the Pope and the bishops and the leaders. And if you know the story of Martin Luther, that didn't bode very well for him. But he says that a simple layman armed with the scriptures is to be believed beyond a Pope or bishop without it. Martin Luther defended the scriptures almost to his death. There was a time where the church put him under arrest because he was questioning the Pope's authority. And he began to challenge all his teachings. And he said, Luther, you need to recant. You need to, to turn away from your choices, your decisions, your teachings of the Bible. Because if you don't, you're in trouble. And Luther knew that he'd probably get killed for his beliefs. So they gave him some time to think about his decision. And he came back and he said these words. He says, unless I am convicted by Scripture... And plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. 
For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Martin Luther would live the rest of his life with a bounty on his head. But he also dedicated the rest of his life to put the Bible into the hands of the people. He translated it into German, uh, a common kind of German language, so people could read it. And that's what's been done throughout the ages. As Brother Andrew showed us, he goes into other lands to get the Bible in people's tongue. You know, earlier this year, I was studying a lot about the, the history of the Latino church in America. And one thing that struck me was that in 1853, a guy named Ambrosio Gonzalez was the first Latino to trust Christ on this soil. 1853, he was a Mexican man. And he says the reason, the thing that was most meaningful in his life was when a missionary gave him a Bible. As I mentioned earlier, it's not a message about the Bible in other people's hands, but the Bible in your hands. What does it mean to you to hold the very words of God? The psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Your soul needs revival today. You find it in Jesus and in his word. That's what happened for Martin Luther, for Ambrosio Gonzalez. That's what happened for Josiah and the people of Israel. Church family, we've got to understand that in God's word, there is life. Because in God's word, we learn something significant. Here we learned about this humble king, this eight-year-old king, who humbly put himself under the authority of God's word and through his humility averted God's wrath and made a covenant before God to walk before him. But as we read the story of this humble king, we're reminded of another humble king who was not eight years old when he came to his throne, was born the king of the Jews. And he would not tear his robe, but be robed with humanity, clothed with flesh. He didn't need to repent because he walked perfectly before his God. And through his life and through his death, he would make it possible for God's wrath to be averted for you and for me. And he made a covenant saying, whoever eats of this flesh and drinks of blood will have eternal life. And he uses that symbolically. This is Jesus we're talking about, whose body was broken on the cross and his blood was shed on the cross. So that when we put our faith in him, we can have eternal life. See, it's God's word that tells us the truths of God and revives our parched souls. What does God's word mean to you today? Is it something that you yearn for? And it's not a point of guilt trip, but it's a point to stir you to love the Lord. Say, God, I confess I don't love your word right now. It's not my delight, but help me hunger for it. This past week at Legacy, we heard a great illustration where one of, one of these guys, this, the same rapper named KB I was talking about, he says he was doing a concert here in Chicago, and he says after the concert, they had Lou Malnati's pizza. He said, we have to do that. We're in Chicago. And he's right, isn't he? That is the best pizza in Chicago. And I don't care what you Giordano people say. It's Lou Malnati's. We know this. <laughs> and he says as he was there eating the pizza, one of the people on his team took a bite of the pizza, and the guy said, this is no different than Little Caesars. Yeah. 
So, so KB said he was on the phone with his wife at the time, and he says, hold on, I'm going to call you back. I, I got I to address something here, you know. And he told the guy, he's like, you don't deserve to eat that right now. He said, the problem is not the pizza. The problem is you. In the same way he related this. See, when we come to God's word, we're like, the Bible's boring. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't change lives. It's just a book of men. You got to know something here. The problem isn't God's word. The problem is you and me. And this is when we say the word is the authority of our lives. We set ourselves underneath it. And when our lives don't align or we don't agree with this, we must understand that the problem is with us. And so today, my prayer is that you would eat some Lumalnatis and not compare it to Little Caesars. The psalmist goes on to say, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Does God's word taste sweet to you? Is it more valuable than gold? I know there's times in my life where that's just not the case. And so my prayer for you and for me is that we say, God, help us delight in this. See, revival comes through the preaching of the word. There is no revival without the good news. And there's no understanding of the good news unless the word is preached. We don't hear about King Jesus unless we open the Bible. So church family, as we pray for God to revive our hearts, pray that he would do it in you first. That he would give you an unsatiable desire for his word. And that each day you would long to wake up and open it. And if you're not there, say, God, get me there. If you don't know where to start, start in the book of Philippians. That's what we've been encouraging our church to do all summer in our DNA groups. Let me just read the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Start a few verses a day. Say, Lord, give me a hunger. Because his word is to be desired above all things. Because in his word we find out about Jesus. I pray that we would be like Brother Andrew and say, this is worth laying down my life for Jesus to get his word across to others. Let's pray together here. Worship team, you guys can come forward, please. Father in heaven, We've seen your word do a number of things this morning. We see how through your word you can redeem a legacy. We've seen how in your word you can expose and oppose the idols in our hearts. We've seen how in your word you can bring us to repentance, which means to ask you for forgiveness and turn away from our sins and turn to you. We've seen how in your word you give us life through Jesus God, we don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God of the Bible. God, we worship you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a hunger, a fresh perspective. And Lord, where we've got, where we've got questions, help us ask the questions. Where, where we don't understand, help us seek others out to help us understand. 
And Lord, together, but we spur one another on to be men and women of your book. To God be the glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Church, let's rise to our feet here. Prayer team, would you guys please come forward? Please know that our prayer team, they would tell you this very thing, that they're not perfect people. (laughs) They're not people who've got their lives in order. Even as I challenged our prayer team uh, or some others last week saying, you know, sometimes we're we're scheduled to be a prayer leader, but we're the ones who need to be prayed for. So please understand they're human just like you and I are. But if you've got a burden on your heart today, God's maybe exposing idols in your heart. Or maybe for the first time, you feel like there is hope even though you've been handed a crummy legacy. Would you share that with one of our brothers or sisters here and let them pray for you? Come to this God of the Bible that we talk about and ask him to help you. Maybe you need to ask him to help your taste buds. They got problems, you know that. God, correct my taste blood buds. Help these flavors start jumping out to me again from your word. Prayer is a gift that God gives to us, us who are prone to wander. So let's cry out to him as we sing this song, just thanking him for his goodness.